You know, the, um, the number one thing that people want, you could say, well, they want this, they want that, but it all boils down to they want certain things because they believe that certain thing will make them happy. As we talked about last week, it, it just really bothers me. It's like fingernails on the chalkboard to hear parents say, well, I want my little Johnny to be happy. I want my little Susie to be happy. And that's why people let their kids go in all kind of different ways. It's just terrible. They want them to be happy. Well, it's not like we want them to be miserable. <laughs> we do want, we like to see our kids happy, right? But we want to see them holy. It's what we want to see them. And we know because that produces something better than happiness. But people want happiness. And I remember going, I was able to find it, but I remember a study in the USA Today, a little um, survey that was taken of the wealthiest 1% of U.S. households. Survey taken of the wealthiest 1% of U.S. households and what they were willing to pay for happiness or what would make them happy. And they, uh, they had eight things that they had listed in, in the thing that uh, how much would you pay for this, thinking this would bring you happiness. And the, the thing that got the lowest amount of money that people would pay for was being president. That was one thing. A lot of people think, well, if I could be president, I would be what? Happy. It's a power trip. People think power is going to make them happy, having power. So, But uh, they were willing to pay $55,000 to be president. And uh, I don't know if that's really going to make you happy. <laughs> but I think we'd take anybody being president right now over than what we have. So, But uh, being president at $55,000, the next thing, the next lowest amount of what they would pay for, they were willing to pay $83,000 for beauty. Yeah, I thought it would be more. But be honestly, people, being... Beautiful is not all that it cracked, cracked up to be, okay? <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> I think of that commercial with that woman, with the, I think it was a shampoo commercial with the, her long hair. She had, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. You remember that commercial? So, uh, the third lowest total was $200,000 for a reunion with a lost love. You know, a lost love, a high school love, whatever they lost. They'd pay $200,000 for a reunion with a lost love. The next thing was eternal youth. They'd pay close to $210,000 for eternal youth, thinking that would make them happy. Next was they would be willing to pay $260,000 for a special talent. Now that kind of got my interest, because I'd like a special talent. How many of you would like it? Some of you have a special talent. It's getting on your parents' nerves. That's it. <laughs> but but uh, I'd pay, I'd like, I'd like to have a special talent. I've tried to play the guitar. I'm just stuck with playing the radio, people. That's the best I can play. But I'd like to have a special, but they were willing to pay $285,000 for a uh, special talent. And then uh, uh, great intellect. Great intellect was number six. They were willing to pay $400,000 for great intellect. I guess for it to be just infused in them or to ha for them to have it. Uh, number seven was true love. 
they'd be willing to pay $487,000 for true love. You know what the highest was? A place in heaven. A place in heaven. The richest 1%, that was their number one, and they would be willing to pay $640,000 for a place in heaven. <laughs> That's chump change. That's nothing compared to the price it does cost. The thing is, if you could, if you could pay something to get into heaven, you couldn't afford it. As the old song said, if I had all the riches the world had to give, and I gave it all away, every penny to my name, it wouldn't buy one splinter of the tree that Jesus died on. It wouldn't buy one drop of blood that was shed for my salvation. Uh, it's a good thing that salvation can't be bought because you wouldn't be able to pay for it regardless of your riches, all the riches in the world. But here's the good news. The price was paid for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, He said, it is finished, paid in full. So you don't have to pay anything for salvation. It's free. And that's what we're talking about today as far as true happiness and joy. We're talking about the joy of God's salvation. You know, people do say, you know, you can't buy happiness, though, by the way. They do say that, right? How many of you heard that? You can't buy happiness. I disagree. Sandra and I, we used to buy happiness when we were young parents of three children. We could buy happiness for $1.99. We could. <laughs> what do you mean? We could buy uh, uh, happiness for $1.99. It was a small box. Inside the small box was a small fry, a hamburger, and it came with a small drink. <laughs> It's called a Happy Meal. <laughs> we can buy happiness for our kids and for ourselves for just a moment. Sometimes that moment only lasted when they got to the table and they opened up their Happy Meal box and they didn't get the toy they wanted, so the happiness was gone. But for a little while, they were happy campers. I'm telling you, they were happy. We were happy. We were all happy. But it didn't always end in happiness. I'll tell you who was happy about that Happy Meal. Ronald McDonald. He's the happy one about the Happy Meal. Totally, but it did buy us a little bit of happiness there. And, uh, but God's got something better than happiness. God has joy. Now, God doesn't have a happy meal, but He does have a happy deal. A happy deal. And that's this. He'll trade you your sin for salvation. Amen. Through repentance and faith in Christ. So God has a happy deal, and that happy deal brings the joy of God's Salvation. And uh, we talked about last week that the epistle of Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. Uh, the word joy is mentioned four times. The word rejoice is mentioned ten times out of a total of 47 times in the whole New Testament. And so on this little, little epistle that we find in the Bible, it talks a whole lot about joy. So it's the epistle of joy. Last week we began looking at uh, the joy begins by having it. The joy of God's salvation begins by having it. We talked about that last week. And today we're going to pick up on point number two. The joy begins by living it. 
So uh, as we're in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without what? Complaining and what? Now, if you want to give your Father's Day a wonderful present, say, Dad, I'm going to give you a, a whole year of doing what you say without complaining and arguing and fussing and moaning. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. You know, when I think about this, dads, can you think of anything more wonderful than at the day of Christ before God with your children. You're rejoicing that I've not run or labored in vain. Yes, and I've, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also rejoice with me. The joy begins by having it. Point number two in your notes, the joy deepens by living it. How many of you can remember back to the time that you were saved? You remember the joy that you had? It was truly joy unspeakable and full of glory. I remember when I was truly saved. I remember the joy. Have you had that joy all throughout your life? Be honest. No, you haven't. You know, what happens? I think that God gives us that infusement of joy when we're first saved. He gives it to us. And we desperately need it because we're what? We're little babes. We're not strong enough to make it on our own. But then as we grow in Christ, God kind of weeds us away from some of that the feeling and the joy that we have because He wants to, us to learn how to live by faith, not by feelings and, and not by sight. But what we've got to learn is that as we grow in Christ, we're expected to what? Do more in Christ. What do you expect of a little baby when they get home? Expect them to start doing the chores? When does that come usually? What age does that come doing chores? Four, four and a half, five. <laughs> that comes a little bit later. But as we grow, there's more that God expects of us. And, and a lot of people who accept Christ, they don't really go much beyond babies. We see that in the New Testament. Paul said, it's time for you to be teachers and you still need to be taught. You need meat, but all you can take is, is, is uh, 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 milk. And you're certainly not going to have, the joy of the Lord's not going to grow in you unless you're what? Growing and living it. So the joy deepens by living it. It says, work out your own salvation. 
Now, a lot of, a lot of people, they, when they read this, they said, work out your salvation. It scares them. They think, well, I thought salvation was, was free. But it says, no, please don't confuse that. It says, work out your salvation. It didn't say work for your salvation. It says, work out your salvation. A lot of people think salvation is of work still. They will say, well, well Jesus saved me, but now I've got to do what? I've got to work to keep my salvation. Listen, when you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus who died for your sins on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins on the cross, and rose again, you put your faith in Him, you are saved once and for all from the penalty of your sins. You're a child of God. And what you do from then on, you rest in your possession of salvation. You rest in that. The Bible said, talk about, you know what, the people say that uh, I've had Seventh-day Adventists tell me that I'm not obeying God's commandment to keep the Sabbath. Well, technically, according to what they're talking about, no, I'm not keeping the Sabbath and neither are you because the Sabbath is Friday evening to Saturday evening. That's the Sabbath. That's the seventh day. Uh, Sunday is the first day of the week. We call it the Christian Sabbath. But the, the, that Sabbath was only a picture of Jesus, who's the fulfillment of that. He is our rest. As Hebrews says, Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. We have ceased from our works for salvation. We rest in Him. And so when, when you repent of your sins and you put your faith and trust in what Christ, His finished work, in, on the cross, His death and resurrection, you rest forever in your possession of salvation. But my friend, you do not rest from your expression of salvation. Rest in your possession of it, but never rest in your expression of it. Because we're to grow in our expression of, uh, of God's salvation. We're to grow stronger in it and be able to express it, express it in a greater way. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. He doesn't save us or keep us saved based on our works. It's His mercy that did that. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, we are clean before God in Christ. And we shared last week uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. To do good works. God saved us to do good works. We're not saved by works. We're saved to do good works. And that's what it's in verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. This is in your notes. God works it in and we by His grace work it out. It's not God works it in and we work it out. 
God works it in. That's a total work of God. A total work. Salvation of being safe from the penalty of sin is a total work of God from start to finish. We have nothing to do with that. It's all His work. God works it in. And I added, by God's grace, we then now work it out. We express it. We express it. We can't work it out on our own. Matter of fact, you wouldn't even work it out on your own. We need God's grace. It says He gives us both the will to, that's the want to, like you want to. He, I remember when I got saved, I got a new want to. I remember the preacher preaching, and I wasn't saved, I thought I was saved. With the preacher preaching sermons about commitment and being willing to go, I remember we would sing that song, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. Wherever He leads, I'll go. Wherever He leads, I'll go. I follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever He leads, I'll go. And I remember thinking, well, to a point. I... And I, I remember thinking, I don't really want to really fully commit my life to the Lord because He might lead me somewhere I don't want to go. I heard the missionaries talk about those mission stories. I heard the kind of food they had to eat in order to get into the tribe for the tribe to let them in, come in and share the gospel. I heard all those stories. I didn't want to go there. So I was kind of... And I always thought, well, if I fully gave my life over to the Lord, I wouldn't be able to have the fun I was having on Friday night with my buddies. I'd have to stop that. And so, I wasn't too apt to fully commit to the Lord. Because I thought if I really gave my life to God, He would ruin it. I would say, yeah, is God good, Jay? I'd say, yeah, God's good. But I wouldn't give Him my life because I guess I didn't think He really was good. He would ruin my life. He'd mess it up. I didn't, I didn't actually verbalize that, but that, I know that's what was going on in my subconscious, in my mind, and I didn't want to give my life to the Lord because I thought He would mess it up. But I'll never forget that irresistible grace of God, that night in that revival tent, when God got a hold of my heart, there was no balking there. I mean, I, I turned it all over the Lord, gladly gave it all to Him. It wasn't what I was doing. It was the work He was doing in my life. And what happened is, and I didn't know this, because I didn't understand it. I know it now. I got a new want to that night. <laughs> God gave me a new want to. Now all of a sudden, I, and I remember just saying, I remember thinking this. I'm in snot and tears. I mean, I mean snot and tears, people. I was a mess. And I remember just all of a sudden over me, I want to love God. I want to share the gospel. I want to be at worship with God's people. I want to be at these things. I want to do these things. Before I did them because you're supposed to do them. It's the Christian thing to do. But now I wanted to. God gives you a new want to when you are saved. And if you don't have a new want to, then you've never been saved. Now, can, can that want to get dampened some? Yes, it can. It has in my life. But God, see, God works in us both to will, that means to want to, and to do of His good pleasure. To do is the ability. So God works in us both to give us a want to do of His will 
and the ability to do his will of his good pleasure. Now here's the, here's the part that gets us. Why don't we have joy the way, we want, that we, the way the Bible talks about? Why are we missing out on this joy? It's because of this. We're not being biblical here. God gives us the will and the ability to do His good pleasure. But what do we want to do oftentimes? Our good pleasure. The flesh, not the heart, not the regenerated heart. The regenerated heart, as the Apostle Paul says, I, I want to love God. I want to serve God. I want to obey God. I want to live righteously and holy. But he said, my flesh, it wants to do the other. Oh, wretched man that I am. With me is the, the desire to serve God and also but the desire to serve my flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we, we have a new soul. We're born again, but yet we live in this fleshly body that's prone to sin. And sometimes we give it a desire to, that we want to please our flesh rather than please God who lives in us. And so we're living for, uh, we live for the pleasure of the flesh rather than for His pleasure. But He's working in us to live for His pleasure. And to live for His pleasure, what do we have to do with the flesh? We have to nail it. <laughs> nail that flesh to the cross, buddy. You gotta, you gotta put, you gotta put to death your members, the Apostle Paul said, that's inside you, your body, your flesh. And when you do that, then you truly do have the joy of the Lord. What we need to understand about salvation, and I have this in your notes, is, is this. God saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. That is salvation in its fullness. Being saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. People, you need to understand this so you can rightly understand uh, what the Bible is teaching. And so you won't get confused being saved from hell. And then also our struggle in this life with our sinful flesh and having victory over that and what takes place in that. And then the, the ultimate being saved from the presence of God. So you got those three words down. Above penalty, write the word justification. Being saved from the penalty of sin is justification. That's the doctrine of justification. And God has... When, when the very moment you repent of your sin and you put your faith in Christ, you are once and forever justified. Declared just in the sight of God. Declared holy and righteous in the sight of God. You are justified justified. That's why it says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You are justified. Another way to remember that is that people you've heard, I've heard, I think Paul might have used this before too, just if you'd never sinned. Justified. Because in Christ, you are sinless in Christ, and that's dealt with. The penalty of sin has been paid. So you have justification also under that word penalty right past. So you had been saved from the penalty of sin. 
you are now being saved from the power of sin. Above power, right? Sanctification. Right? Sanctification. That's the uh, theological term for this process of a Christian's life. We're in the process of being saved from the power of sin. We have the new, we're newly born again. Our heart, our spirit is born again. It desires to love and please God. Yet we live in this flesh. This flesh desires to please itself. It's sinful. And there's that struggle that's going on inside of us in our lives. It's the, 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 the new nature versus the flesh. And so that word sanctification is the biblical term of that where God, the word sanctification means to be made holy. God is working to make us more holy day in and day out in our Christian's life. Now as far as salvation is concerned, it's already we are holy in Christ. When we stand before God on the day of judgment, we're not going to stand before God in that last sin that we commit or any sin. We're going to stand before God in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But for practical purposes in living this life, God is working through His Spirit the work of sanctification to make us holy, to make us more like Christ in our daily lives. So below that word power now, right, uh, pre uh, present. That is the present work. That is our present situation. We're being saved from the power of sin. And then one day we will ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin. From the very presence of sin. That, the word for that is glorification. Now the Bible does say, whom He justified, then He also glorified. But the full picture of that has not happened yet. We are glorified. It's, it's as good as done. It's going to happen. Nothing can come hell or high water. Nothing can change that. Our glorification is a done deal. It's going to happen eventually. When we get our glorified bodies, when we're in, in God's presence, we'll be saved very, from the very presence of sin. And below that right future, that's what's going to happen in the future. And that's when we, uh, while we sing that song, Save to sin no more, save to sin no more, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Now, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about glorification, when we talk about all that, you know, I remember the old gospel quartets, they would sing about, I'm going to walk those golden streets, I'm going to enter those pearly gates or whatever. Now, the Bible does give some of that imagery. But honestly, that's not on my mind. You know what I think about the most? I'll never sin against my Lord again. That's what gets me excited about heaven. I'll see Him and I will never sin again. That is when the salvation package is completely wrapped up and finished. Saved to sin no more. Saved to sin no more. All the ransomed church of God saved to sin no more. Now that's the total picture of salvation taught in Scripture. And you need to understand uh, past, present, future, penalty, power, presence. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Now here, for this message, 
living out, working out your salvation is sanctification. So when he's saying here, work out your own salvation, it's not justification. That's already done. It's not glorification. Who's going to give you that new body? That's not going to sin anymore. Can you do that? No. That's God. He's talking, when he says work out, living out, working out our salvation is sanctification. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. Being saved from the power of sin in our flesh. And it calls for these three things, or these, these next things. It calls for consistency. It calls for consistency. Verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved... And again, he's writing to the saints of God. My beloved. He's not writing to just anybody in general. As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, speaking of Father's Day, fathers, are we happy with our kids just obeying in our presence? We want them to obey in our absence. Matter of fact, we want them to step up the game in our absence, don't we? I'd rather, wouldn't you rather, wouldn't you rather them disobey in front of you than the world? I expect them to step it up in my absence. And that's what Paul said. Now that you've obeyed, not in my presence only, but even more in my absence. When Paul was gone, instead of taking their pedal off the metal, they, stuck, they put their pedal on the metal. I mean, they, they, they even uh, were more faithful. And Paul praised them for that. And that's just a wonderful thing. You want that for your children. You want them to learn to obey, not just when you're looking. But all times. Now here's what children need, though. Children need to see us doing that at all times. <laughs> here's what I found out as a pastor. And it's been heartbreaking many times to find out that people that I thought the church were strong Christians. They certainly seemed strong Christians. But lo and behold, come to find out, not so much at home, not so much at work. I got to the point sometimes where when I would meet somebody and they say they worked at such and such a place and I knew I had a church member that worked at that place, I kind of got to the point sometimes where I'm afraid to say, well, do you know so-and-so? I remember one time, I'm not going to call the name, but they said they worked at such and such a place and it was one somebody I thought was just a fantastic you know, Christian and everything. And I said, well, you know, so-and-so is a member of my church and, and their kind of head kind of hung down and they didn't, I could tell they didn't want to say anything. You know why? Because so-and-so wasn't so hot at, at the job. They didn't want to give me a bad report about a church member who they work with. So children need to see that in us. That we are consistent, whether we're at church or home or at work or whatever we're doing, they need to see that consistency in us. That we are striving to be obedient to the Lord at all times, regardless of who is what? Watching. 
Now, here's what's really sad. I want to I, I read over some of this a while back, and I want to encourage you to take some time to look this up, but the new Barner Report. Barner did a new report on, on the biblical worldview and biblical worldview in the church and in homes. But I remember this. I'll tell you, the percentage, the percentage of parents who are living a biblical worldview before they're teenagers. I'm going to tell you the percentage. What it is. Because it wasn't just a little thing, well, are you a Christian? Do you do Christian things? No. They did a study. They asked questions to find out if these people really do have a biblical worldview, how they're living their life. It was an in-depth study. And this study showed that a born-again, quote, born-again parents, not... American parents. No, born-again American parents who are living a biblical worldview before they're teenagers. Who wants to guess the percentage? Single digits. Now guess. Three. Three percent living a biblical worldview. But yet we want, we want consistency from our children. Where's our consistency? Well, I'm not perfect, preacher. Well, I'm certainly not either. My kids can tell you all kinds of stories. But you know what the story they can also tell you? They know their dad's real. They know their dad repents. They know their dad says, please forgive me. I was wrong. Don't do like your dad did right there. That's why I'm working you so you'll do better. So it calls for consistency, B, for seriousness, for seriousness. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek words with phobia and tremos. Those Greek words sound familiar? Phobia and tremos? <laughs> phobia was what? means what? We hear that word a lot today, right? Because we know that Tom, there's not a bigger homophobe than Tom there. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, all these phobias were called, and you know, we got a pastor that's a transphobe. You know, he is. And you know, all these people that we're, they're called all kind of phobias that we're afraid. You know what? Well, you know what? I, I'm afraid of sin. I, I don't like sin. Sin's bad. We ought to be afraid of it. <clears throat> but talk about all this phobia. What we need is some God phobia around. We need people to understand they need to be, they need to be. Afraid of God. Jesus said, listen, don't be afraid of those who can just take your body and kill you. You fear Him, fear God who's able to destroy both your body and soul in hell. That was a little, that was a little something Jesus taught. People think Jesus taught about love, love. Jesus said, you better fear God. He's able to throw your, both your body and soul in hell. The, the world, they only can kill your body. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, here's my question. Is that the kind of fear that we as born-again children of God should have? Is that the kind of fear we're to have of God? The answer is no. The world needs to have that fear of God. But as the children of God, we don't have, we're not to have that type of fear. 
And I'll talk about that. Uh, but here is that he talks about with fear and trembling. Work it out with fear and trembling. In the middle of what? What is this epistle known as? The epistle of what? Joy. In this very epistle, when Paul's going to preach in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it says what? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But fear and tremble at the same time? Yeah. People ask, can those two things coincide? Can you have the joy of the Lord and fear and tremble at the same time? Yes. Matter of fact, you can't have, you really can't have the joy of the Lord without the fear and trembling. Some, are, some will try to explain to you a way, no, it's not saying you should be afraid of God. It's just that you should respect God and reverence God. Well, I say it's all three. You should respect God. You should reverence God. And even as a child of God, you should be afraid of God. You should be. Not afraid that God's going to reject you and send you to hell. That's already taken care of in Christ, right? Christ bore the wrath of God's judgment on sin for that. But you should be afraid of God's what? Discipline as a child of God. You know, my dad, every night after I got my spanking, what, you didn't get a spanking every night? Every night after I got my spanking, my dad would come to my bedside and kiss me and tell me, kiss me on the head and tell me he loves me. And my mom and dad always told us that they told us to love him. And I remember sitting down with them and said, but what if I ever did this, dad? Whatever, I would think of the craziest things I could do that would, I know would tick him off or make him mad or hurt him or whatever. He would say, Jay, I'll half kill you, but I'll always love you. <laughs> if you do that, I'll half kill you, but I'll, <laughs> I'll love you. He said, I'll love, there's, he said, there's nothing you will ever do to stop me from loving you. There's nothing you will ever do that will change the fact that you're my son. You'll break my, you could break my heart. You could make me disappointed. But you will always be my son and I will always love you. I grew up with that, people. I'm so blessed. And because he loved me, he did some other things to, to me too that made me fear him. I never once, never once uh, feared my dad's rejection of me as his son. I never thought, well, when he finds out, he's going to reject me as his son. He's going to disown me. I'm never, he's going to uh, never love me anymore. Never once that crossed my mind. I'll tell you some things that did cross my mind. <laughs> he's going to kill me, half kill me, if he finds out what I've done. You know, I did not, I did not fear my dad's rejection, but I did fear his discipline. And I knew he would discipline me. I knew it was because he loved me. I knew that. You know what else I did? I did also fear letting him down, disappointing him, breaking his heart. See, only by a healthy fear of the Lord comes the true joy of the Lord. And when we have a healthy fear of the Lord, we fear God, both, means both reverence and respect, and also it means what? Being afraid of his discipline. 
that will lead us down the right path in the way that we live and it would produce true joy, the true joy of the Lord, the true joy of salvation. Not fearing God will lead you into pleasing your sinful flesh. It will. And there's a pleasure of sin. It's for a season. As someone as well said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever want to pay. Where's the joy in that? Where's the joy in sin? There's no, there might be a, a, a momentary pleasure and happiness in it, but it always leads to destruction. People say, why do you have to fear God? Isn't love God enough? No, it's not. Love God is part of it. But love God's not. Did just loving God work for Adam and Eve? You know, I love my dad. Sometimes it's my love for my dad that kept me from doing things. At other times it was what? The fear of discipline and what was going to happen if he found out. They both go together. Fearing God will lead you to live for His good pleasure rather than your flesh's good pleasure. Uh, write these verses down very quickly here. And I want you to reflect on these. People think, look at the fear of the Lord is something bad. The fear of the Lord is wonderful. The fear of the Lord is life. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is, is, is a fountain of life. Uh, Psalm 19.9 Psalm 1.11 verse 10 Proverbs 1.7 Proverbs 8.13 Proverbs 14.27 Or just look up that phrase, the fear of the Lord in your coordinates. The fear of the Lord is clean. How many of you like clean? How many of you are joyful when you come home to a dirty house with dirty dishes all in the sink? Oh, what the joy. Don't you like a clean home to come home to? Isn't that joyful? Oh, everything's so nice and clean. The, the fear of the Lord is clean. Don't you? How many of you have joy when you have a guilty conscience? Doesn't that bring you joy to have a guilty conscience? No. But when your conscience is clean... Doesn't that bring you joy when you have a clean conscience before God? The Lord, fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember I said the, the, uh, the rich would pay how much they would pay for what? For intelligence or, or you know, wisdom or whatever. Guess what you get with the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. You can't even begin to have wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. Look at all the smart people in our world today. They tell you you can't even define a woman. I mean, they're fools. I mean, they have a lot more education than, than you and I do put together. One of them probably does. And yet, they're fools. They're godless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. When you fear the Lord, instead of going to evil, you what? You hate it. You won't go there. You won't go in that direction. Again, because you know it'll take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever want to pay. 
The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord brings life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's joy, people. And the fear of the Lord is what? It's joy. So when he's saying to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying throw out joy for the moment. No, it goes together. You truly can't have one without the other. Live for God's good pleasure. It's pleasurable. Living for His well done is well pleasing. I mean, if you live your life, because we know the story that Jesus told, one day He's going to judge His servants and He's going to say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. When you read that in the Bible, don't you say, I want that to be me, right? Living for His well done is well pleasing for you in this life. It's not just going to be well-pleasing then. It's well-pleasing now. So it's going to cause for seriousness. It also uh, is a, uh, calls for work. Work, verses 12 through 16. Work out your own salvation. Is that word work? The, uh, some people think work is a four-letter word. <laughs> well, it is, but not a curse word. They, they look at it that way. But work is part of the Christian life. God expects us to work. God expects us to work hard at our jobs, whatever we do. But certainly at our sanctification. We couldn't... Sanctification is not all ours by ourselves. God works in us to give us the will and also to give us the ability, but we've got to do our part, and it's work. It's not easy. You know, the Christian life is always represented in Scripture as a life of effort. Think about it. Of work and, and struggle. We are told to what? Again and again to run the race. Is running easy? No. It's hard. To fight the good fight. Is fighting easy? No. It's hard. To strive, we're talking about to strive. Is striving easy? No, it's hard. To press on. When you're out there and you, you want to quit, you want to give up, right? But you do what? You press on. Is pressing on easy? No, it's hard. The Bible says give diligence. Is that easy? No, it's hard. It's work. There is a work that only God can do and there is a work that only you can do. And it's vital for you to understand this. It takes work to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It, it said do all things in your work. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And not only are we to work, we're to work with a good attitude. We're to work to become something that you may become blameless. We don't work to become a child of God. No. That's done with what? Christ. But to be a, a blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a, a, a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights, that takes work. To become a child of God that's pleasing to the Father takes work. 
It also calls for sacrifice. Sacrifice. Verse 17. Paul said, Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. There's a picture of here. They would bring a sacrifice to the Lord in the temple. And it would be on fire. And then they would take a drink offering and pour it on top of that. And the drink, it would send up steam and up, up to heaven. It was a, it was a, the more important part of the offering was the sacrifice that was there. That was the blood that was shed in that sacrifice. The drink offering poured on it was a part of it. And Paul was actually saying that you Philippians, sacrificing and serving God, your worship and service toward God, if I'm just a drink offering being poured out on top of that to make it pleasing to God, I rejoice. I rejoice. The word service, the service of your faith. You know what that word service means? That word service means sacred priestly service. Every one of us, we have a sacred priestly service we're to give to God. We come to, today is called a what? A worship service. We often think a worship service is just a worship event. Something we attend. But no, it's a place where we serve God. I serve, I'm serving God right now through preaching the message. You're supposed to be serving God by listening to see if it's true or not and how to apply it to your life. What do I need to do about it? Because God deserves what? Our best. And Paul was saying here, talking about sacrifice, he was rejoiced and was so glad to be poured out in service for, the, uh, for their benefit, for their growth, for their sanctification. Paul was their spiritual father. And Paul was willing to pour out his life on their behalf. For their good. And that's what a, a good Christian dad is. He's willing to pour out his life over his children and over his, over his family in order to help produce in them what? Faithful followers of Christ. Every Christian father should have this attitude. You know, we get, get tired, don't you? Sometimes you get tired. And we do need a break. We're not perfect. We need some rest. But don't give up, dads. It's hard work. Pour your life out. Keep pouring your life out on your children, your grandchildren. And say, say, God, I'm so grateful that I'm a saved, born again, man of God. And by your grace, you can pour out my life on their lives to help produce in them what you want them to be. God, pour out my life over my children over my wife, over my grandchildren. Take sacrifice. Then lastly, this point is quick. The joy expands by sharing it. Because we talked a lot about it in evangelism. The joy expands by sharing it. He talks about holding fast the word of life, or holding forth the word of life. Some translations have holding fast to the word of life. And it's both. It's holding it out to the world, and it's also holding to it. So as we hold it out to the world, as we hold it out to the world, we what? Also hold to it. We hold fast the word of life. To a what? What kind of world? 
a lost, dark, perverse generation. And we talked about that last week. And we are to do this by the lives we live and the words we say. By the lives we live and the words we say. Holding forth the word of life. Also involves the idea of preaching the word. Speaking the word. So many people are afraid today to speak the truth. They, they fear the world. They fear what will people think? What will people say? Will I get canceled? <clears throat> Holding forth the word of life. Speaking it. Living it. Apostle Paul, he said, I, I just hold forth the word of God, uh, the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day that I have not run in vain. It's by what we, how we live our life and what we say. A lot of people think, well, if I just live a good life and a good person, let my light shine, that will do it. No, it won't. Not only, yeah, you do need to live it. But you also need to what? You need to say it. You need to speak up. Now there's great joy in sharing the gospel because you know when we share the gospel, souls are saved. You might not see it. You might be the one who, who maybe plants the seed. Somebody along behind you comes later on and waters it. And then somebody else comes behind and the fruit's ripe and by God's grace they're able to pick it. But you'll see it in heaven. You might not see it in this life, but you'll see it in heaven. God's word will not return what? Void. God's going to save the ones who are going to be saved. There's great joy in sharing the gospel because souls are saved, lives are changed. I mean, I, can you think about in heaven how wonderful it would be to know there are people in heaven God, because God used you to live and preach the gospel. How awesome is that? Souls are saved. Lives are changed. Lives are changed. I mean, you, you, you'll be able to see some of that in this life when you see somebody who, whose life that was lived in wickedness and debauchery, they ruined their lives, and now they're saved and they're born again, their lives completely turned around. Lives are changed. But most importantly, God is pleased. God is pleased. God is pleased. Because it's He who works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know, I want to please my father, my earthly father. I'm so thankful I'm able to still see him and talk to him today. Lord, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing to know that he would look on me as his son and be pleased.
But God, so much more. I want to please you. And I pray that would be the desire of each and every one of us here today. Above all, we want to please you. And we know this, that pleasing you is seen for the world, by the world, when we are truly living out the joy of our salvation. In a dark, deceived, perverse world and generation, may we as your saints truly, Lord, be living out the joy of our salvation for a lost, dark world to see. And that you would use us to bring many into your kingdom, into your family. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. May God apply this word to our hearts today. Amen, church. Um, that was good. We all need that, don't we? <coughs> and hopefully your, your heart is rejoicing in your salvation today as well. It was so good to hear that word of God today, and may we apply it. Would you stand with me and we'll, uh, we'll sing the doxology as we leave today and uh, Brother Jay will meet us on the porch and uh, let's continue to praise God this week. Let's sing together.